You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke and experience true discipleship. Before we welcome Pastor Kevin to the stage, please join me in today's scripture reading from Matthew 21, 33 through 46. And if you're able, please stand. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous to our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Lindsay. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. My name is Kevin, and I'm the lead pastor here at Sojourn East. If you're visiting with us, I want to say thank you for joining us this morning. There's a lot I know that we're bringing and carrying with us right now as a people. There's the rise in COVID cases. There's something Tuesday, the election, uh, that I read 70% of Americans it's causing a significant amount of anxiety in. And so on top of what's happening in our world, we're all carrying our own struggles and burdens. And before we jump into the text, I just wanted to read one verse from Psalm 103. And this is why we gather what this verse declares. It's we gather to remember that the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. And that while the nations rage and while, you know, a virus is spreading and while there's so much chaos and worry and anxiety in our world, we gather to remember that our God rules over all, that he's in complete control. And we come here because we believe that his word has, it is the word of life. And it puts a call for us as individuals and as a community. And so with that in mind, let's take these burdens to the Lord in prayer. Father, you rule over all. There there is nothing that is outside of your power. There is nothing that you don't see. There's no burdens that we are carrying that you are unaware of. So Lord, we lift up on behalf of our country and our world, 
We pray that you would give us relief from this pandemic. She would give doctors wisdom, scientists wisdom, that you maybe by a divine act of mercy would lift this. We pray for our country this week, a presidential election. Lord, you, you rule overall. You're the only king that we have. You're the only king that we need. While our elected officials, it's important. And so we pray that across the country, not just for the presidency, but senators, representatives, local and statewide politicians. Lord, we pray that you would establish godly people, people who live lives marked by deep integrity, who might lead and serve our country well, with honesty, might lead us to a more flourishing nation. Lastly, Lord, I pray for people here who are burdened, Maybe it's by suffering in their life. Maybe it's by a particular sin that's been haunting them as of late. But I pray, Lord, as we open your word, and this this passage is a sharp one, but Lord, we know that your word, it can cut us, but it cuts to heal. And so I pray that we might receive the truths here and we might respond with faith, love, and obedience. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, over the last few weeks, we've been exploring the final days of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. Matthew 20 through 28 basically covers seven days. And what we have here, uh, we're, we're kind of stepping right into the middle of a conversation between Jesus and the, the high ups and the religious establishment of that day. You know, Jesus got into conflict with Pharisees a lot and other teachers, but here Jesus is going toe-to-toe with the chief priests and the elders, the head honchos of the temple. And they're going back and forth, and the, the, what's started on is the, the chief priests, they asked Jesus, who, who are you? Who do you think you are? By what authority are you doing all of the things you're doing? Because Jesus presented a problem to them. And the problem was that he performed these wonderful miracles, and people you know, we're flocking to him. People loved him. He, he won the uh, approval of the crowd. But at the same time, Jesus had some very hard words for the religious leaders. He brought some very, very stinging indictments on them. And so these chief priests and elders, they're trying to figure out what do we do with this man, Jesus. And so they're asking him, hey, who, who are you? What is your authority? And the parable that we're looking at this morning is part of Jesus's answer to this question. It's about who he is, what he's come to do, but also what he's come to confront. If we're going to understand this parable, you know, this is something that took me a long time to learn, but oftentimes when when Jesus tells a parable, he's often riffing off of other popular stories in that day, but he brings his own twist. And so to understand this parable, we actually need to go back to Isaiah chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2. I don't want to spend too much time there, but I think it's really, really important. In Isaiah 5, Isaiah says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. We'll just stop there for a second. If any of you have read Song of Songs, this kind of sounds like a line straight 
from Song of Songs, which is a, a book of pretty intense love poetry. And so Isaiah is talking about his beloved and how his beloved has this vineyard that he cares very much about that's on a very fertile hill. And then Isaiah goes on, verse 2, he says, He dug it and cleared it of stones, and he planted it with choice vines. And he built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. So this, this is a parable here. And Isaiah's telling us that God, he has this vineyard that he's put great care and attention and energy into. He's done all of these things. He's built a wall, a watchtower, planted it with vines, wine vat. And then Isaiah says why God has done this. He says, and he, he looked for it to yield grapes. Why would you start a vineyard? Because you want to grow grapes. And so God creates the vineyard, which is Israel. And he looked for it to yield grapes. But instead, it yielded wild grapes, rotten grapes, Useless grapes. They kind of look like grapes, but you can't make wine with them. So what Isaiah is doing here is he is he's starting what will be a long prophetic indictment on the nation of Israel. God, if you remember, he called Israel out as a special chosen covenant community, his people. And he said, I'm going to bless you. This is what he told Abraham, the founding father of Israel. I'm going to bless you so that you can go and bless all of the nations of the earth. And Isaiah uses this imagery of a vineyard and of God caring for it and tending it. And the whole purpose of it is that God wanted his people to bear fruit. But then he looked at them and they didn't yield fruit. Instead of finding good, ripe grapes, he finds wild, rotten, worthless grapes. This is a, a parable in Isaiah about all that has gone wrong among God's people. And it's a parable of judgment. If you skip down to verse 7, I don't have it on the screen, but this is where the Lord starts speaking. And he says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for, this is the, the grapes, the good fruit he was looking for, and he looked for justice, but behold, he found bloodshed. And he looked for righteousness, but behold, there was an outcry. And the outcry was among the disadvantaged of that day who were being mistreated and abused. And you can continue to read it. I really encourage you. It's fascinating. Isaiah 5, verses 8 and onward, God delivers all of these woes upon his people. And I think as his people today, that's something that we should take heed of. We should listen to. We should examine. So everyone that Jesus is talking to, the chief priests, the elders, they knew this story. They knew this text. They'd memorized it. They probably preached sermons on it. They're very familiar with this imagery of a vineyard, with a wall, with a tower, with a wine vat. And so Jesus, he's sitting there while he's being interrogated. They say, who do you think you are? And he starts talking like he's Isaiah. He starts acting like a prophet. And he, 
in some ways it feels like he totally ripped it off, but since God inspired all of scripture, it's his to rip off, I suppose. But he says, there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. But here's where Jesus brings his own twist to the story, like a great teacher. And this master leased it to tenants, and then he went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. So in the story, the landowners invested a lot into the vineyard, and all that he's invested into the vineyard was done with an eye towards this very moment. I mean, think about it. For years, he built it, and he cultivated it, and he was doing it all. Why? For the harvest. And the time for harvest comes, and he sends, the owner sends servants to go and collect his fruit from the vineyard. This is where, none of this is strange. What's strange is what happens next. Verse 35, we're told, and the tenants took his servants beat one of them, killed another, and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. This is odd. There would have been a contract. The owner would have hired them, and they would have had an agreement. He said, listen, I've purchased this field. I've put all of my money and energy and labor into building this vineyard, and I'm going to give you the tools necessary to work it, and I'm even going to pay you to work it. But when harvest time comes, the fruit belongs to me. And so when the master seeks to collect the fruit, the workers, the tenant farmers, they they rebel against him. And instead of handing over the fruit, they start beating his servants who come to collect it. Then they start stoning them. And then they kill them. And the master, you know, he's very patient, obviously, and very generous. He sends even more servants. Instead of just calling the authorities, he sends more servants. And he says, give me my fruit. And they do the same to them. They, they beat them, and they stone them, and they murder them. Something's gone terribly wrong, terribly wrong in the vineyard. Then we read in verse 37, finally... He sent his son to them, saying, of course they'll respect my son. I mean, the son had the authority of the father. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. This is the moment we've been waiting for. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now, this is completely irrational, impulsive behavior on the part of the tenants. Do they think the master's just going to turn a blind eye that is now not just his servants? Not just have they not given him his fruit that's rightfully his. Not just have they beaten and killed his servants. Now they've killed his son. They think they're just going to get away with it, but that's what they are going for. It's irrational. It doesn't make one lick of sense, but that's what's happening. We see what their motive is right here in this verse. When they see the son, they say, look, there's the son. If we get rid of him, then he doesn't get his inheritance, which would be the vineyard. So what's going on in this little parable is Jesus is saying, somehow, 
These farmers, these tenants, have gotten it into their heads that the vineyard should really belong to them. Doesn't make any sense, but somehow they got, got to the place where they thought, why should he own the vineyard? We should own the vineyard. And it drove them to act in violent and irrational ways. It kept them from giving the fruit. It kept them from honoring the owner. And it just it doesn't make any sense. They didn't buy it. They didn't own it. But for some reason, they felt like it should belong to them. And so Jesus... He concludes the parable. He asks a question. Remember, he's asking this of the head honchos, the chief priests and elders. He says, What therefore, or when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? What would be the proper and appropriate response? Now, of course, this is a trap that Jesus is laying for the chief priests and the elders, but they don't know it. And so they respond, they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Jesus, he responds indirectly with a seemingly cryptic allusion to Psalm 118. Jesus said to them, he does it again, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, Jesus, he's referring to something that would be well-known again back in that day, the cornerstone. It would be the most important stone laid in a building. I mean, it was... At the bottom is the foundation, but it also set the lines for the rest of the building. And so when builders would build something magnificent, like the temple, let's say, they would go to the quarry and they would, the architects would be there and they would look at different stones and they would say, that one is cracked, that one looks unstable, that one's irregularly shaped. And they would pick out and choose which one would be the stone that everyone would see. And Jesus is saying, well, there's a stone that everyone else rejected that's going to become the cornerstone. This is so interesting because it's a little bit like, what does this have to do with anything, Jesus? You're talking about (laughs) grapes and then architecture. They just gave you an answer to your parable, your riddle, and now you're talking about this. And there are two keys to unlocking what Jesus is saying here and the meaning of the parable and what it means for us. The first is the context. They're saying, who do you think you are? By what authority are you doing these things? And in referencing Psalm 118, Jesus is answering that question. He's saying, I'm the stone that was rejected. And this is the second clue that we need that's hard for us to see, impossible for us to see in our translation. But there's a play on words here. The Hebrew word for son is the word ben. Anyone here is named Ben. That's what your name means. It means son. Now, the Hebrew word for stone is eben. Just one word different. And so Jesus tells a story about a rejected ben, a rejected son, and then he quotes this parable about a rejected eben, a rejected 
stone. He's bringing it together, but he's doing it the way Jesus typically does. He's forcing them to think and put some things together. But with those two keys, we can unlock the meaning of the parable. The vineyard represents God's covenant community, as we saw in Isaiah 5. The servants, they represent the various prophets that God sent to Israel over the years. And if you look at the lives of the prophets, it didn't typically go well for them. Many of them were rejected, many were beaten, some were stoned, and some were even killed. The son, the Ben, is Jesus. And Jesus is telling them what's going to happen in the coming week, that he is going to be rejected, dragged out of the vineyard, so to speak, and put to death. And so the question is, who are the workers? Who are the tenants? The answer is, it's the religious leaders. It's the chief priests, the elders, those who are put in charge of leading and caring for God's community, those who God entrusted the work of producing fruit among his people. And those guys just told Jesus that what the owners should do in this story is put those wretches to a miserable death, bring judgment on them. See, Jesus, he's not just foretelling what the chief priests will do. He's also warning of a very severe judgment that's going to come upon the leaders of Israel. He continues, verse 43, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone, this ebon, will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now, when the chief priests, priests and Pharisees heard his parables, <laughs> they perceived that he was speaking about them. Like they're so, so delusional. They're so certain that they are the special ones and the chosen ones and that God has all of this special love for them that Jesus has to tell story after story after story. And here, it's so interesting. He tells this story, and it's like it finally clicks. Wait, is he, is he talking about us? And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is a fascinating parable, fascinating text. It's like overflowing with meaning. There's so many things that we could press into here. But the question I want to ask is, what, what does this parable and this parable of judgment, particularly on the Jewish leadership, what does it mean for us? What does it mean for us right now in this moment? Because we're not chief priests or elders in Israel. None of us are. This seems like a very, you know, targeted parable. He's speaking to very particular people, what's, what's something we can draw from this? I prayed about that, listened to some great teaching on this, worked through it. And when you, you work through this parable, you see that there is a theme that pops up again and again. When you go back to the story, what, what's the initial source of conflict between the owner and the tenants? What, what's, what precipitates all of this? They're arguing about fruit, right? 
And then when Jesus asked the leaders what the owners should do, they say he should go and put, put the old workers to death and then hire new workers who will what? Produce fruit. This idea of fruit, it's a major theme in Matthew's gospel. We see it over and over again. Chapter 3, John the Baptist, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then he has this really strong warning. Every tree that does not bear fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And then you get to chapter 7, and Jesus starts saying that. Same thing. Every tree that doesn't bear fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And then you get to chapter 12, and Jesus says, a tree will be known by its fruit. And then you get to chapter 13, the parable of the sower. And you have all of these plants that are trying to grow, but only one of them is producing fruit. But it's producing amazing fruit, 30, 60, 100 times. Even earlier in this chapter, Jesus curses a fig tree. Why? Because it bears no fruit. This parable is about fruit. And Jesus cares about fruit. And he says in verse 43, the verse we just read, he says, therefore I tell you, telling the leaders, the men who'd given their lives to to leading the nation of Israel, he says, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and it's going to be given to someone else. Who's it going to be given to? People who produce its fruits. Now, this is a part of the gospel that I think oftentimes gets lost, especially in churches like ours in the evangelical church. We often lose sight of how how much Jesus cares about fruit. And we lose sight of the fact that the reason he came to Israel, the reason he came and condemned these leaders was because they... They weren't producing fruit. They were producing wild grapes, rotten, stinky grapes. They kind of looked like grapes, but they were useless. Now, what's so interesting about this, and what really drew me in and I struggled with for a good while this week, is how could Jesus say that the religious leaders, they didn't have fruit? I mean, these guys never missed worship. They never missed a Sunday, Saturday. These guys, they, their prayer lives would put most of ours to shame. Their knowledge of God's word, most of us and our knowledge to shame. They did their sacrifices, their duties. And yet Jesus tells them that the kingdom's being taken away from them. Why? Well, he says, I want to entrust the vineyard to people who will produce fruits of the kingdom of heaven, fruits of my kingdom. And so for Jesus, I mean, all of those are really important, essential parts of the Christian life. But for Jesus, it's possible to read your Bible, go to church, pray, do all sorts of things and have, not have the fruit. Do you guys see this? It's challenging. It's really challenging. The fruit that these leaders put their confidence in, it's not the fruit of the kingdom. You can understand why they're a bit upset. What are you talking about, Jesus? We've, we've worshipped you, our, or we've, we've honored God and followed all of his commands. We've even added extra commands to make sure we don't break his commands. What are you talking about that we don't have fruit? 
this. And the answer, probably the most succinct, shortest answer I can find is if you turn to Matthew 23, just a little bit ahead, Jesus, this is where he really, he really reveals his heart to the Pharisees and the source of his anger. And if there was one verse that I could go to that could sum up what Jesus is condemning them for, it's Matthew 23, verse 23, where Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin. You, you tithe off of your garden. You, you tithe. I mean, this is pre-tax tithing. Like, you're doing some things really, really well. But you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done, ought to have done without neglecting the others. So you're tithing, you're praying, you're worshiping, you're studying my word. That's good. You should have been doing that. But what you haven't done, what you've neglected is the, the main thing, the weightier matter, the central matters of the law. And what are those weightier, weightier matters? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And so if we are going to be a people who want to produce the fruit of the kingdom, I think it's only right and necessary to ask, are we producing fruit marked by justice, mercy, faithfulness? The word justice it appears over 200 times in the Old Testament. At the most basic level, it means to treat people equitably. But often, usually when this word shows up, four classes of people show up with it. When God's talking about justice, sure, he's saying don't rip people off, don't steal. But when it comes up, oftentimes when God speaks of justice, he talks about widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. He talks about people who had little to no money and little to no social standing. The vulnerable. Our day, the vulnerable would be, some of it would be the same. Poor, immigrants. I think I'd throw single moms in there and the elderly. I'd also throw the unborn in there. And when you look at the Old Testament, you look at the prophets, you see that God measures the justness of a society by how it protects and cares for the weak, the vulnerable, and the disadvantaged. And when God sees injustice, he burns with anger. When he sees the vulnerable being taken advantage of, he burns with anger. And I know justice and social justice, these are words that are really charged in our day, but they were charged in that day too. And I want us to be very careful as a people and as a church that when we speak about these issues, make sure that we're not speaking against something that God speaks for. God cares about how the vulnerable are treated. Second one, mercy. He wants us to be just, treat people equitably and seek to protect the vulnerable. Second weightier matter is mercy. Now, mercy is closely linked with forgiveness, 
but it's broader than just forgiving someone of a particular offense, like someone hurts you and then you forgive them. Mercy is more a posture, an attitude. It's an orientation of your heart that strives to see things from the other's point of view, that's not quick to take offense. Mercy never gloats over others' failings. Mercy doesn't entertain revenge fantasies. Mercy, like how one commentator put it, mercy means to take a less rigid, more loving approach to those we disagree with or at odds with. Man, we could use a huge dose of mercy right now. A huge dose. Instead of trying to capture people in a gotcha moment, instead of twisting people's words, instead of hoping and praying for their demise, mercy is having a heart that seeks to understand them seeks to put yourself in their shoes and seeks to give them the benefit of the doubt as much as you're able. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes people tell you exactly who they are and you see it and it's very clear. But the general approach, the the heart of mercy is a heart that longs for reconciliation, that longs for unity, longs to show love, justice, mercy. And then the third one is faithfulness. And faithfulness walking in obedience to God. It's not just obeying the letter of God's law. It's obeying the heart of his law. It's holiness, purity of body and heart, living with a, a deep awareness of our dependence upon him for everything and seeking to honor him with all that we say and all that we do in all of our relationships. Everything Jesus taught, it falls under one of these three categories. Every single one. These are the fruit of the kingdom that Jesus wants to see in his people. I mean, the religious leaders, they were faithful in their duties, but you you study the Pharisees, they took so much pride in their money and position. You know, Jesus tells a story like they'd go to a dinner and they would fight over who gets the best seat. They didn't have a heart that was producing the fruit. They were rigid. They were harsh and judgmental. They were self-indulgent at the same time, but they tried to exclude people from the temple. You remember we saw that a few weeks ago. They kind of hijacked where the Gentiles were supposed to worship, and they turned that into their marketplace to make their lives a bit easier. Now, they read their Bibles, and they prayed, but they did not live lives marked by justice and mercy faithfulness. So that leads to another question, the last question, I think. Why? Like, how did these men miss the mark so badly? How could they read Isaiah 5 and not ever apply it to themselves? Like, what was going on in them that led them to read the word, but not do the word. To hear the word, but not do the word. I mean, and let's not pretend like this was just their issue. Why do followers of Jesus, why does the church often miss the mark so badly? I mean, Jesus couldn't be more clear. We've spent two years now studying Matthew's gospel 
And at times, preaching it gets challenging because it's like he says the same thing over and over and over and over again. Love people, forgive, serve, show mercy and compassion, walk in humility, repent. And yet, sadly, the church is often marked by arrogance and self-righteousness and self-indulgence and pride, just like the Pharisees. Why? What is it? Let's go back to the parable. Why did the tenants beat and kill the master's servants and eventually his son? The answer is because somehow, somehow they forgot who they were. They forgot, they forgot that they were workers, that they were tenants, that they didn't own the place. Now, the owner, the landowner invited them to participate in cultivating his vineyard. He gave them money. He gave them food. He gave them tools. He entrusted it to their care, but somehow they got it into their minds that they should be the owners and that they should be in charge. And as this mentality took root in their hearts and their minds, it led them to do very irrational and also very horrible things. It drove some very, very bad behavior. The month of October, one of my favorite months, we were just talking about that. Uh, three of my kids' birthdays fall in the fall. Um, and so it's kind of this month-long birthday season celebration. Unfortunately, my two-year... So there's, there's a lot of energy. I mean, there's a lot of birthday energy flowing through the house for a month. Uh, countdowns. Like once one's done, then it's the next. All right, how many days? And they're counting it down. Unfortunately, though, my two-year-old... His birthday falls in January. And so there's all this birthday energy, but he doesn't get any of that energy in October. He's a sweet kid. He's by far the easiest kid we've ever had. But birthdays are so hard for him. Like he really wants to open the presents. You know, we have to swat his hand. The cake comes, he tries to blow out the candle or grab the cake. He rages when we tell him no. He gets so mad when we tell him, it's not your party. And it's not your birthday. You're invited to the party. And your brothers and sisters, they'll let you play with their presents and you'll get a slice of the cake. But it's not your party. This isn't about you. In the same way, what happened to the Pharisees, what happens in the church, is we get used to some things, we get enough knowledge to be dangerous, and we can start to think that God ultimately exists for us and lose sight of the fact that we exist for him. Put it another way, he isn't a character in our story. He's not even the hero in our story. Instead, we... We are characters in his story, and he's graciously invited us in to participate in his work. He's given us so many things, but what he longs and desires of his people is that they would produce fruit. And when we lose sight of this truth, that's when things really start to go wrong in our lives. When we lose sight of the fact, uh, I think it was Marilyn Robinson talked about the givenness of all things. 
when we lose sight of the fact that everything we have has been given to us, that it's all a gift, but it's been given and trusted. There's stewardship that we're called to with it. When we lose sight of it, that's when things go wrong. I mean, when we lose sight of the fact that everything we have comes from God and we start to think that it's ours, well, it goes wrong in a couple different ways. It can lead to pride and a sense of entitlement, but it can also lead to deep worry and anxiety. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, don't worry. Why? He said, well, look, God provides for the birds and you're worth more than a lot of birds. And so he's going to provide for you. But when we lose sight of the fact that Everything's a gift. We're create creation. He's the creator. We stress out. We get anxious. Things don't just go wrong internally. They go wrong in our relationships with others because when, when we forget that everything's a gift and that we're just, we're, we get to participate in God's story, but it's his story. It's not ours. When we try to make it ours, what do we do with other people? We, we seek to manipulate and control them. We get irritated or angry when they don't do what we want them to do or they don't live up to our expectations of them. Anyone? Is that true for anyone else but me? When you stop, I mean, in the moment it's hard because you're mad, you know, and with little kids you can make them laugh while they're mad and you can laugh at their ridiculousness. But as you get older, you don't, you kind of lose that ability often. But think about how you get angry or irritated when someone doesn't do exactly or live exactly how you think they should live. destroys our relationships with others. But it also causes things to go very wrong in our relationship with God. When we forget that he's God and we're not, we get angry with him and irritated with him when things don't go our way. We get anxious and fearful. We indulge in sins that we think is okay because no one can tell me how to run my life. We look at our, our lives and when we think that God's a character in our story, like he's, he's the Robin to our Batman, then we, we just don't do the hard things that he calls us to because they're hard. When we think that God is a character in our story and we take this owner mentality, it all should belong to me, we won't do the hard things like loving difficult people. We're showing mercy to those who've wronged us and hurt us, forgiving and showing mercy. One of the hardest parts of the Christian life is, I think we all agree, we're called to forgive, but then a lot of us, what we do is, when it's hard to forgive, then we don't. Like, well, but they really hurt me, so I'm not going to. So we, we forgive the slight offenses, but the big ones, we, we're not quick to show mercy or forgiveness because it's so hard. Maybe it's staying true to your commitments. Maybe it's living a life of sexual integrity and honesty. You name it. If God exists for us, we just won't do the hard things he asks of us. And I say all this because what's very clear in this parable is that Jesus is absolutely committed to building a community of people who will produce the fruit of the kingdom of heaven. He's 
absolutely committed to create a people who embody justice and mercy and faithfulness, who act justly, who love mercy, who walk humbly with their God. But for this to happen, for us to be those people and continue to be those people and and grow and deepen as those kinds of people, we have to remember that he's the owner, that he's the author. We must never lose sight of the nature of our relationship to him. You know, the election, it's just in a couple of days. And I know many are anxious and it's important. Uh, I encourage you to vote. It's a privilege. But what I'm seeing happening in our world is people are giving so much of their minds and their hearts and their energy to things that they have absolutely no control over or very little control. Like you get to vote on Wednesday, you don't really get to do much. But then we have all of this media that we can fill our minds with. I mean, we've got a nation being discipled by cable news. And so every day there's a new drama and we're watching it and we're consuming it and it's fine, you can watch it. But what it does is I think it keeps us from attending to what God has called us to right before us, right in front of us. My dad was a a very interesting man, but he was a TV yeller. Anyone else grow up in a home? Maybe some of you where they would yell at the TV when there was something they don't like. It's like they can't hear you. It doesn't work that way. But he would just scream and scream and scream. Well, now social media has actually allowed us to kind of scream all of our anger into the void and hope that it lands with someone. And I think it's very, it's distorting us as human beings. And I think as God's people, it's taking our eyes off of what's been entrusted to us right before us. So what I want to encourage us as a people, do your duty on Tuesday. But the most important thing that we can do is focus on what God's put before us. The people before you, the relationships that he's put in your life. And so I want to ask you, who are vulnerable people that you can step in and advocate for or help? Who do you need to show mercy to? Are there any relationships in your life that need mending? Is there anyone you need to have a hard but important conversation with that you keep avoiding? What ways do you need to attend to your walk with God? Are there sins that you need to repent of? Are there behaviors that you need to stop engaging in? Maybe it's really hard but you can reach out and ask for help to God and then to others. Jesus cares about the fruit we're producing. As we move to the table, we're reminded of this truth that everything that we have, it comes from God. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, this might be a new concept for you. And it's kind of requires a paradigm shift that everything is a gift, your money, your relationships, your stuff, your abilities, even your body and your breath. See, sin, it's not just a bad thing that we do here or there. It's us neglecting that he is the owner and that everything is a gift and we're called to steward it well. 
And I want you to know, I mean, sometimes in the church, the talk is like, those are the sinners out there. We're all sinners because we've all mismanaged. We've all taken the owner mentality at some point, and it's always operating at some level in our lives, always. As long as we have sin, it's going to do that. But the hope we have in Jesus is though he brings this very searing indictment, he doesn't follow it up by bringing judgment. He follows it up by bearing judgment just a few days later. He follows it up by offering his life for our life and for our sins. And the greatest sin of the chief priests and elders, it wasn't their self-righteousness, it wasn't their fruitlessness or pride. Their greatest sin was their rejection of God's Son. They rejected the cornerstone. They rejected the one who came to save them. And so I encourage you, if you're not a Christian, don't reject the one who came to save you. If you are a Christian, I encourage you to be reminded that our God is exceedingly patient. That's one of the hidden themes in this parable. As God is gracious, he is slow to anger and abounding in love. We don't have to run from him in fear. Christ has taken our sin and our judgment. So this time... As we come to the table and remember Christ's body broken and his bloodshed, it's a time for us to reflect and examine our lives. It's a time to repent, but it's also ultimately it's a time of receiving where we receive the fact that when we were dead in our sins, Christ gave his life for us and he did it so that we might become his disciples and bear much fruit. So as you take the bread and the wine, I encourage you to receive it with joy. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.